Welcome to this week's episode of Quiddity on the Circe Podcast Network, where we engage in the classical spirit of inquiry. I'm your guide, Brandon LeBlanc. I hope you're all enjoying the new year. This is one of my all-time favorite episodes from the Quiddity Archives. I knew nothing about this poem before listening to it, and I simply fell in love with T.S. Eliot's The Journey of the Magi by the time the conversation between David, Matt, and Christine was over. I think about this poem and this episode every year when Epiphany, or Theophany in the East, rolls around during the first week of January. So from me to you, here's a little 12th day of Christmas gift from the past. Christine and Matt, how's it going? Doing well. Yes, great to be here. Nice to be thinking about poetry with friends. <laughs> Amen. So, yes. happy Advent, Merry Christmas. Are, do, you have any, uh, do you have any big plans for Christmas, either of you? Christine? Well, because I am a teacher and I'm grading up until December 21st, mm. <laughs> and, um, I have to do one thing at a time and not think ahead. And um, also because I'm Orthodox, I don't really think of Christmas yet. I think of you know Advent and preparation right now. Mm-hmm. So I'm very much in that mode of Advent as opposed to Christmas. Mm. Yeah. So do you? Will you do follow the Julian calendar when it comes to Christmas? No, actually, our church celebrates on um, the same time as um, as everyone else. It's okay, yeah. the 24th and the 25th. Yeah, yeah. Matt, what about you? Christmas plans? So, Well, my oldest son will be coming home from college next weekend. So we'll, nice. our big plan is to go see Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And then... Uh, You're not alone. Right. I, don't, I didn't think so. <laughs> um, and then we'll have, we'll have family over and do... Uh, big dinner on christmas eve so nice. and then we'll be at uh uh christmas morning we'll be at divine liturgy or to be at the church services nice nice well in the spirit of the season we wanted to talk about a a christmas poem and so we're going to talk today about t.s Eliot's the journey of the magi now christine some of our listeners probably know vaguely who T.S. Eliot is. I mean, obviously, there's going to be some out there who are very familiar, might be listening to this because it's about a T.S. Eliot poem. But for people who are a little less familiar with who T.S. Eliot was, or maybe only know the name and have a vague appreciation of who he was, could you provide some background on on T.S. Eliot? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Eliot was born in 1888, and he died in 1965. So he was a... writing in the modernist era. Uh, He was born an American and he eventually moved to England and and took um, British citizenship. Um, He is the giant um, in poetry in Britain and America for that period. He um, got a master's degree but uh, really was just incredibly uh, self-taught and became the major critic, um, I would say. And but not only was he a critic, he was a poet, and he wrote some of the most influential work. Um, his one of his major poems is the Wasteland, and it was a poem that people talk about being uh, broken forms. You know, poem of broken forms kind of initiated our um, entrance into the modernist period. And um, this poem in particular is so interesting because it was written um, right after his own conversion to Christianity. He became Anglican. Um, He was not 
he was, um, you know, not a Christian until later in his life. And this, this is really one of the last noteworthy things he wrote. So not only did, was it written after his conversion, but um, it was, you know, one of the later made, it's not a major work of his, but it was one of the later noteworthy poems that we're kind of more familiar with. Hmm. So let's talk, well, should we, should we just read it first and then we can dive into it a little bit deeper or would you like to provide some background on the particular poem first? I think reading it is a great way to start. Okay, um, let's do that then. Uh, Christine, would you like to read it first and then we'll have Matt read it as well and we can just experience it that way first? Sure. Journey of the Magi. A cold coming we had of it, just the worst time of the year for a journey, and such a long journey. The ways deep and the weather sharp, the very dead of winter. And the camels galled, sore-footed, refractory, lying down in the melting snow. There were times we regretted the summer palaces on slopes, the terraces and the silken girls bringing sherbet. Then the camel men cursing and grumbling and running away and wanting their liquor and women and the night fires going out and the lack of shelters and the cities hostile and the towns unfriendly and the villages dirty and charging high prices. A hard time we had of it. At the end, we preferred to travel all night, sleeping in snatches with the voices singing in our ears, saying that this was all fun. Then at dawn, we came to a temperate valley, wet below the snow line, smelling of vegetation, with a running stream and a watermill beating the darkness. And three trees on the low sky and an old white horse galloped away in the meadow. Then we came to a tavern with vine leaves over the lintel, six hands at an open door dicing for pieces of silver, and feet kicking the empty wineskins. But there was no information, and so we continued, and arrived at evening, not a moment too soon finding the place. It was, you may say, satisfactory. All this was a long time ago, I remember, and I would do it again, but set down this, set down this. Were we led all that way for birth or death? There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but had thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death. Hmm. Matt, why don't you take a, I would say take a crack at it, but that's probably the wrong <laughs> metaphor. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll take a stab at it. That's a hard, hard follow. That was uh, very well read. Um, okay. A cold coming we had of it, just the worst time of the year for a journey, and such a long journey. The ways deep and the weather sharp, the very dead of winter. 
And the camels, galled, sore-footed, refractory, lying down in the melting snow. There were times we regretted the summer palaces on slopes, the terraces, and the silken girls bringing sherbet. Then the camel men cursing and grumbling and running away and wanting their liquor and women, and the night fires going out and the lack of shelters, and the cities hostile and the towns unfriendly and the villages dirty and charging high prices. A hard time we had of it. At the end, we preferred to travel all night, sleeping in snatches, with the voices singing in our ears, saying that this was all folly. And at dawn, we came down to a temperate valley, wet, below the snow line, smelling of vegetation, with a running stream and a watermill beating the darkness, and three trees on the low sky, and an old white horse galloped away in the meadow. And we came to a tavern with vine leaves over the lintel, six hands at an open door, dicing for pieces of silver, and feet kicking the empty wineskins. But there was no information, and so we continued and arrived at evening, not a moment too soon finding the place. It was, you may say, satisfactory. All this was a long time ago, I remember, and I would do it again. But set down this, set down this. Were we led all that way for birth or death? There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but had thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation, with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death. Hmm. I really love your voice, Matt. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, I was going to say that it was really interesting to listen to both of those, to, to see the difference or to hear the difference in the readings. And you, you, it wasn't that your pace or even like your enunciation was all that different, but from the very beginning, you know, the, the deepness of Matt's voice meant one thing. And, and then, you know, the, the calmness of your voice, Christine, meant another thing. You know, it, it was just a very interesting contrast, but not in a way that meant, meant, made him feel like different poems. You know how sometimes you'll hear two people read a poem and it almost feels like they're not the same poem. Mm-hmm. Which, and that might be that you've both spent a lot of time with this poem, or it might be that that is somewhat the mark of a good poem. <laughs> and that might be a different conversation for a different day. But um, were there any lines... Uh, in particular that stand out to either of you? And uh, since I started with Christine last time, I'll start with you this time, Matt. Any lines or um, couplets or something that stood out to you that um, as particularly meaningful or that spoke to you as you read it? So, uh, well, so when I, I, I have not spent a lot of time with the poem until yesterday. I, uh, when we talked yesterday and you reminded me that we were going to discuss this poem today, I thought, oh, I better familiarize myself with the poem. <laughs> so I printed it and then I downloaded an audio reading of it. Uh, interestingly, the audio reading was T.S. Eliot himself reading the poem. So I downloaded his reading of it. And then on my drive home from the Circe offices, 
about an hour and 40 minutes and I just listened to the poem over and over again oh, and wow. I set out to try to memorize it and I actually I probably have it memorized but I was too scared to try on the air so <laughs> <laughs> um, so I memorized it on the on the drive home and and then I read it uh, I, then I when I got home I began I started reading it and looking at the the way it, it's laid out on the page he he doesn't read it the way I would. <laughs> um, I, I think I do a better job reading of it, actually. <laughs> yes, Elliot himself does. Um, <laughs> no arrogance there, right? But anyways, the um, the very first line that jumped out at me when I when I began listening to it last night was the uh, the statement in the third stanza. There, there was a birth. Certainly, we had evidence and no doubt. And I thought, I thought, I just it just struck me that. He's writing this in a time period where the birth is in question. It's not certain that there was a birth 2,000 years ago hmm. and, or 1,900 years ago at that time. And yet he writes it, of course, writing from the Magi's perspective, I think. Um, it, it, it's not even a question for the Magi, right? There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence. We had no doubt. Hmm. And, and then he starts you know, talking about other births and deaths that he had seen. I just thought it was interesting to... Um, to say it with such certainty, knowing that the audience that would read it would, you know, be taken aback by it. Hmm. Christine, what about you? A line or couplet or something along those lines that, no, no pun intended, that uh, that spoke to you. Well, um, of course, I agree with Matt that that moment in the poem is one of the most intriguing and the most riveting, um, and I. I do love the fact that he inhabits the voice of the of the um, magus, and um, he. What's so interesting about that choice is, as you point out, we have someone writing in 1927 or so. You know, for 2,000 years earlier, um, and so inhabiting that voice of the Magus, but then at the same time writing as a, a contemporary modern person with vernacular speech. Um, that is such a very, um, I think that's one of the things that brings the poem alive. But I would say one, another line in addition to that is, um, that has always really gotten to me and I've tried to knock my head against it is, um, but there was no information, and so we continued and arrived at evening, not a moment too soon, finding the place. It was, you might say, satisfactory. And um, I've kind of, I've had to chew on that a lot because um, I loved the way Matt read it. He, he had that kind of um, irony in his voice, hmm. that sort of flatness when he said the word satisfactory. And I, I do think that that word, what does it mean that that word satisfactory? Why is the finding of the birth of Christ um, satisfactory? And I think the more you, you think about it, you understand from the poem that there is this challenge that has a kind of ambiguity about this event hmm. for the speaker. Um, he feels more than one thing about it. It's not all bells and whistles and, you know, 
like some of the adoration, adoration of the Magi um, uh, pictures, you know, of, of the Renaissance, of great um, paintings of this. Um, it's, it's not, he's not in the moment of celebration when he's telling us about it. And so I think that that tone um, and paradox and, and the, the doubleness that he's feeling within himself, the doubleness of the voices, to, you know, the, the modern speaker and the magus, um, contribute to the word satisfactory or are part of the word satisfactory. But I think as well, there's a double play there. And the other thing about the word satisfactory is um, the, the kind of satisfaction that Christ's death and life, life and death was hmm. satisfaction hmm. of Adam of um, sin, um, and so that that's a another just hinge of the poem. Hmm. One thing I'm struck by is the way that moment seems to be the point at which the narrative portion of the poem, fragmented though it seems to be kind of ends. Yes. So the first two stanzas seem to be the narrative of their travel in a, in a very kind of Eliot way, right? It's, it's, it's not, it's, it's detailed, but not in the way that helps you understand exactly the step-by-step, -step, you know, like rising action, falling action kind of things you'd normally expect in a narrative, but it's a narrative nonetheless. And interestingly, it's in the first person plural. So he is talking, this particular narrator, the poet is, constantly thinking in terms of we right a cold coming we had of it um uh let's see we came to the tavern um so it's, it's all first person plural then at that moment this at the moment of satisfaction there the narrative ends but it ends before we don't see the baby in the right. poem right and so it ends there and then the last stanza seems to be uh very like con contemplative of his experience and it switches to first person so I remember, I would do it again. I should be glad for another death. Um, and it's, I find it interesting that, that the narrative ends before we as, as, as readers, as listeners, as hearers, get the satisfaction of meeting the baby that they're seeking. Mm -hmm. That's such a great point because it, it leads to that irony of that word. It was, you may say, satisfactory because he's just denied us satisfaction. Yeah. So he is in some way enacting the mixed feelings. You know, he's making us feel a lack of satisfaction after this huge buildup. And then we did this, and then we did this, mm -hmm. and it was hard, and it was this, and it was that, and then we got there. Yeah. But and yet at the same time, you know, we we believe that that birth was as you as you pointed out, the satisfaction. So, it gets us there. And then implicit in that is that the birth itself was satis you know, the satisfaction of, as you, as you put it, of sin. But then we get the ending, which we should talk about whether or not the ending is dark later on. I, I'd like to get to that. Um, yeah, let's get there first. That's... Yeah, but but we um, but we don't we don't meet him, and we are not satisfied from a narrative perspective. But yet we believe, if we believe, we believe that 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 the baby is was provided the satisfaction that was necessary when I theologically speaking when I read the poem last night to my family just after the first reading out loud the uh one of my family members responded saying how is this about the journey of the magi 
Hmm. And and I think it's that point right there that you just made that made them feel that because that you would think that a poem about the journey of the Magi would end with them meeting the baby Jesus, hmm. but it doesn't. You know, he's he doesn't give us that satisfaction. So so that the the, the gut reaction was. Wait, how is this about the Magi? <laughs> and then, then we read it again and you know talked about it. But um, you can see that it is, I think. But there is that and that initial lack of satisfaction because he stops right there. And uh, it's a great point about the irony of it because it that stands with that stands ending ending on the word satisfactory. Yes, I love that. Could we go back to that first stanza? Yeah, let's and do just it. Talk about the way in which he presents the journey to us. Both, I would say, you know, the formal choices that he makes, as well as um, the kinds of things that he notices. And and I think it's really helpful for us to think about his voice too. Mm-hmm. You know, what do we learn about him, even just from the tone and the kind of nature and texture of it? Where do you want to start? Um, line one. From the beginning. <laughs> I, I do find it, as I, as I mentioned, you know, the, the first two stanzas are this first person plural perspective. Um, you would expect that it's one of them talking about all of them. Um, but it is interesting that he starts with a cold coming we had of it. And, and it's a very communal experience. This difficult journey is a very communal experience for them. And even with the people, you know, there's all these other people besides just we would suppose the three magi, right? Uh, traveling with them. Yeah, right. At least we do hear about the camel men. Yep, yeah. Apparently what? a lack of women. Right. <laughs> and a remembering of the luxurious life um, in their summer palaces and with the silken girls bringing these delicacies. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, this contrast of basically it was the worst it could possibly be, you know, they're coming from warm climates um, and it was cold and it was the worst time of year. And he even emphasizes a journey and such a long journey, you know, I mean, he's really laying it on thick here. Um, yeah, even just the word choices seem to get worse and worse, right? Yes. There's a there's the that feeling of death too, right? I, I mean, he uses the word dead there, the yeah. very dead of winter, but then the, I mean, even the line before that, the ways deep, the weather sharp, um, lying, the camels are lying down hmm. in. There's it, it's a very dead, a very dead feeling world that he's describing. As well as and, and cold, as well as long, and, so, and contrasted with the summer palaces and the slopes. And can can I ask about this? There were times we regretted line. It's line yeah. one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. <laughs> Mine's not numbered, but it's line eight for those you know for our listeners that want to check that out. Because he says, you know, the ways deep and the weather sharp, the very dead of winter, and the camels galled, sore footed, refractory, lying down in the melted snow end stop right there's a period there then he says there were times we regretted and i'm thinking you know instinctively my thought is oh they're gonna regret that they left right but it says there were times we regretted the summer palaces on slopes the terraces and the silken girls bringing sherbet what's going on there 
like why does he i mean why do they regret the summer palaces or or is kind of elliot using that our expectation there to just turn it upside down it is a go ahead matt in his reading of it he has a very lengthy pause between the word times and we so he reads it and the camels galled sore-footed refractory lying down in the melting snow there were times we regretted the summer palaces on slopes, the terraces, and the silken girls bringing the sherbet. Um, I don't know. I don't know why. He, I, the poem itself doesn't seem to call for a pause there. You know, the, the form of it. I don't know why he paused there. When I, when I read it, I thought that, I thought that he was saying that, that the coldness of it, the length of it, uh, the the deafness of it, the soreness of it, that all of those things were worse on them because they had lived that kind of pampered life in the summer palaces. And so they regretted pampering themselves because it it made this it made this journey that much harder. So, so I think the whole poem is about the giving up of a way of life, and they are talking about having given up that way of life, um, at least for a time at this point in the poem. And I think they both, it seems you could read that we regretted them, meaning we regretted leaving them. We regretted not having them. Mm -hmm. We regretted their absence. But I think you can also read it in the way that we were just talking about, which is that we regretted their indulgence. We regretted their indolence. That so that change of life aspect of it, I think, comes up again in this in the second half because he starts listing all of the things that were difficult. Uh, this, more, more specifically, right, the camelmen cursing and grumbling, running away, they're wanting. Um, they can't keep the fires lit at night. They don't have shelters. The cities, the towns, villages, everything's just rough on them. A hard time we had of it. And then there's and then and then there's this change again at the end. We prefer to travel all night, sleeping in snatches. Like they're even giving up the normal way of traveling and, and enduring all those things and just skipping the city, skipping the town, skipping all that and just kind of traveling all night. Hmm. I love that list because of the anaphora. Um, yeah. And yeah. silken girls and running away and the night fires and the cities and the villages. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean... He, he goes to such great lengths to give us a sense of the exigency here, of just how hard it was to do this first thing. Hmm. And I think that the first thing becomes the pattern of the whole thing. And I think that the language and the way in which he describes just the extenuating nature of it, both with the things that you were noting earlier, such as... Um, you know, journey, such a long journey, and then the next line, deep, sharp, dead, you know, even the emphasis of the language, and then now here, and, 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 there's just this desire to communicate the overwhelming nature of this experience. Hmm. It's relentingness. And the repetition itself speaks to the kind of, the nature of the journey. Yes. Yeah, it it makes it feel you feel the length of it, almost with the by by working through that list. And there are places online where you can go look for. Um, they'll show you the map, 
of actually how long it would have taken to get from where they were um, to where they were going. So it is literal in that sense. But um, the other thing I really like about the end of this is his kind of revision of the sirens. Mm -hmm. um, the voices singing in our ears, you know, kind of like the sirens in Odysseus's mm -hmm. ears. Um, you know, of course, they were trying to get him to drown himself, um, to, you know, come after them and drown himself. And here, likewise, trying to, to get these um, magi to abandon their journey because it was just foolish. What are we doing this for? This just doesn't make sense on a human level. Why would kings do this? It's too hard. Hmm. Oh, that's, that's a good reminder. Because the, you know, I don't, I don't think about the Magi as just, just a word that I'm familiar with. But that, so I, it, I never occurred to me as I was reading through this that we were talking about kings hmm. doing this. Just, just such a simple reminder, and it, and it makes it, it makes it even more, uh, po I don't know, potent. I guess the, the poem itself. When I realize that we're not just talking about a couple of buddies who decide to go on a road trip. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think it's also relevant that that first chunk of the poem is the longest one. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very interesting that then we, we come to, um, oh, I will just note that the very first section of the poem, one, two, three, four, five lines, is in quotations. And um, apparently that is a quote from a Lancelot Andrews sermon, who was an Anglican um, in the 1600s. And one thing that's very interesting to me is that and it's, he was preaching in this sermon, which actually you can find on the Internet. I haven't read the whole thing yet because um, it's kind of hard to read. It's, the text isn't quite right. But um, he, he was very influential to, to many Anglicans. He was very influential to George Herbert. Hmm. And one of the things that George Herbert had to do when he was growing up in um, the Westminster School was they would go to the services on Sunday and then they would have to um, write a poem in Latin about the sermon. Hmm. It's sort of a school education to, to write a poem out of the sermon. Hmm. And so in some sense, I think this is a poem that Eliot is writing out of that sermon. Hmm. And apparently that quote is directly from the sermon. So I noticed the quotes, and I had no idea why they were there. So I'm glad you said that. I was going to ask. Yeah, I had to research it myself I wasn't sure either it, it's a beautiful passage the language itself is quite poetic but so I'm guessing he probably doctored it up a little hmm. mm. I'm, I'm glad you also mentioned the the ending of the first stanza the idea of it being an allusion to the sirens but it's so fascinating to me that the last line of that stanza is that this was all folly and that the last word, therefore, of the first stanza is folly. Mm. Um, and, I, and I'm kind of, I think I'm grateful that Eliot, if I can put it that way, that Eliot included the idea of their doubt. Um, 
as in this first stanza because we do get later on we get that answered we had evidence and no doubt but you you'd have to imagine that even if they were pretty convinced in their you know that the star was leading them somewhere that at least there were times when they were wondering if it was all worth it and i think it helps you know just from a narrative perspective i think it helps you know provide some conflict in a way you know or extra conflict for the narrative but it also i think speaks just to common human doubt you know it's it's brilliant too in the same way that satisfactory the word satisfactory is is as you were pointing out christine that 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 there's it's kind of, it's so packed full of meaning and in, in in different meanings because you know as you're pointing out david the the word folly there you know reminds us and it, it makes them very human very real that they were that they had doubt and that they were weren't always sure that this was the right thing to do and and yet the folly also makes me think of you know the passages in scripture where it talks about you know the foolish being made wise and the mm. you know God using the weak um, to to exhibit his strength and the faith of a child and uh, mm. that that they're that they're being very childlike and and the the weak that are being used there I yeah. think um for Elliot um as well. Uh, doubt really was something that he felt was bound up with faith. It was just one side of faith. Um, hmm. It wasn't um, so much a challenge to faith, but more um, a natural and essential part of um, the process of believing. And I think that this this poem is, is very much about a process, I think, um, you know, the journey of the Magi was a journey from um, paganism to belief um, or belief in something else. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. and then, of course, um, there's your life has to calibrate itself to that change and the old ways have to die. And I think we become, we begin to understand just how hard that is. I mean, there's the, there's the challenge of, of doubt and there's the challenge of, of just making the journey to get there, to find the evidence. But then there's the journey, the, the next journey of um, the old ways, um, the dying of the old ways. And if you think about what had to die in their lives and what has to die in our lives, to make room for Christ, um, you begin to understand the tone, I think, even better. Hmm. 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 Let's, um, the second stanza seems different in a way. I mean, obviously, it's the next portion of the narrative, if you, you want to look at it that way. But, but it also seems to be much less clear in a sense um, there are metaphors being used here and images that are being crafted and presented that boggle the mind a little bit more we we get the idea of the camel men cursing and grumbling and the camels lying down in the snow and preferring to travel all night and those very concrete physical trials but then in stanza two 
They come into the tempered valley, wet below the snow line, smelling of vegetation, with a running stream and a watermill beating the darkness, and three trees on the low sky, and an old white horse galloped away in the meadow. And so you were reading these images here of the watermill beating the darkness, and three trees in the low sky, and an old white horse galloping away in the meadow. Um, so I want to ask what we think those images are doing there. Um, what's Elliot doing with them? But I want to point out also that we get the, the, the way he crafts the language here switches quite a bit in that last line about the horse there because we get um, the running stream, the watermill beating the darkness, and three trees in the low sky. And he doesn't say, and an old white horse galloping away in the meadow, but he has an old white horse galloped away in the meadow. And that's, those are, that is, those mean different things. Um, what's going on there? I, let me let me say something about the. Um, I, I don't. Want, I'm not going to answer your question yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do my own thing. Um, I want to just say something about the thing that you noticed because I listened to this poem. I bet a half a dozen times before I noticed that. Before I noticed the change from running and beating to galloped rather than galloping. And what I, I'm not I'm not really well versed or studied in poetry as a whole. So the um so when I hear people talk about poetry, I get I, I, I used to get I used to get um frustrated because I would think, well I read the poem and I didn't notice any of that stuff. <laughs> and so why are you guys all able to notice it? Um, what's wrong with me? And, and then what do I need to, what, you know, what, what, what tricks or whatever do I need to learn to be able to do that? And what I found with, um, it is actually it, it, through this process of, of reading the poem multiple times and, 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 and especially in the attempts to memorize it, be, especially when I, when I, when I put the poem away from me and then I try to recite it from memory and I choose the wrong words. Mm -hmm. And then I look back and I'm like, oh, wait, that's not the word he chose. And then I immediately start asking the question, well, why did he choose that word? Or why did he choose that tense? And, 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 and that was, that's how I've started noticing, noticing those kinds of things. So sometimes, sometimes we, I think the uninitiated of whom I am one, of whom I'm, or whose number I belong to, um, the uh, like we think that there's some sort of special, either magic skill that you all have or special training that I'm not going to be able to get. But but I wonder how. And I'm not trying to say that you guys are not <laughs> well trained or educated. Um, but I, oh I, no, it's magic. It's definitely magic. <laughs> Christine, it's just Christine's got a special it. kind of magic. Playing with it, right? I love what you're saying, Matt. Yeah, I me agree one hundred percent. I I think first of all, what you're suggesting shows such reverence and and um, and fidelity to the work itself, and and trust of language and trust of the craft, really, of a piece of art, as opposed to thinking, well, now I'm going to impose my ideas on this thing because I'm so smart, you know, but rather really kind of serving it 
until it begins to emerge. And I like to tell people, instead of being afraid of what you don't know, ask yourself, what can I know from this poem? And it's kind of like me with visual art. I don't know visual art that well. Um, and sometimes when I'm, you know, thinking about getting a piece of student art or something like that, I, I think, well, what's good, you know? And then I have to kind of make myself see what I can see in it, see what what I respond to. And uh, but you don't really know until you gaze a long time. And so your idea, Matt, of just immersing yourself in the craft and trusting the language and and letting the poem kind of mingle with you and your voice and your mind. I, I think that's the best advice anyone could ever give about poetry. Yeah. And I think that, you know, even an experienced, experienced poet or an experienced teacher of poetry doesn't see everything, as you said, magically right away. They might learn to look for certain things or be, or used to, or might, or might become used to coming across a certain kind of language or a certain, you know, image or whatever, but they're still seeing things because they're letting the poem be what it is and they're immersing themselves in it and they kind of let it wash over them before anything else. They just... I, th I thought to myself that, um, I'm sorry, I, th I thought to myself when I, when I did after the, you know, whatever, sixth, seventh, eighth time, when I did start noticing those word changes or the tense changes, I thought to myself, you know, in the future, I might notice that more quickly. And that might be like what the trained teacher of poetry is able to do, um, is notice it on the, maybe the second or third read instead of the sixth or seventh. But um, it still takes time. It takes time with the, with the work, right? Mm -hmm. Whatever it is. Yes, there's no getting around the time. And I think that's one of the reasons that poetry can fall out of favor because it does require that time. But just as David's saying, it's not just that you don't get it on the first read. It's that you could be spending the rest of your life thinking about a line and it could suggest itself to you in new ways. Uh, I still feel very uncertain about the last line of this poem. Um, I don't think, I think that a, a sort of secular reading of the poem is that that last line is one of resignation. I should be glad of another death. Mm -hmm. um, but, but of course, um, you know, the, the Christian economy of death is that, you know, we understand that it opens up a world, um, and that it's a meeting of, um, Christ, just as the journey of the Magi is a meeting of Christ. But, but I'm not really satisfied with either of those responses on their own you know I, there's something more in that last line that i don't i'm not getting yet so anyway i don't want to move there right now but i'm just saying that i think part of what literary work gives us is the opportunity to return and return and return and keep digging there's always more there and that's a gift yeah and that's i mean that's kind of in a sense the definition of great literature right of great great works of art that there's that you can keep going back over and over and over again and discovering new things and heck even discovering things about yourself yeah um so, so the point is not to be an expert in some sense yeah so yeah uh, david i'll take a crack at your original um question i think okay. but 
I, I, not, I don't know about necessarily the specifics of the tenses there, but just that second stanza. So when I read it, uh, when, I, when I'm reading it, I read this first stanza as being very, um, well, just as we've been describing it, cold and de- dark and, and hard and, and there's death. And then you get to the second stanza and he says, then at dawn, boom, we have light. We came down to a temperate valley. It was below the snow line. So we're getting away from the cold. We're getting away from the dark. Smelling of vegetation. We're getting away from the death. There's a running stream rather than, rather than camels lying in melting, melting snow. We have a running stream and a water mill. And what's the water mill doing? It's beating darkness. There are three trees on the low sky. I, 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 read, I assume the low sky had something to do with with dawn and then an old white horse galloped away in the meadow and so again the meadow so I, I i was reading it as if they had this they traveled through these gentile lands and everything was just horrid and then we get they get to the, the promised land and there's life and they're and now they're excited and they're they're um they they, they think they've they've arrived but then they meet the people of that land when they come to the tavern and there's even some more life there, the vine leaves, moving toward the symbolism. And I won't, I don't know that I'll, I'll jump on that yet, but um, apart from just the symbol, symbolism of life. But then they get to the people and then they're disappointed again. The people there are dicing for pieces of silver. They're kicking empty wineskins. I assume the wineskins are empty because they've been drinking them and they're drunk. Um, but maybe not. There's probably something to do there too with not putting new skin, new wine into old wineskins, um, and then and then the people have no information, and so they have to go. They they have to continue. Like they've 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 probably gotten there thinking, yes, we've arrived, we've 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 made it, and then they find out that they haven't, and so they have to continue. And then of course you get to that great, you know, the great lines that you mentioned at the beginning, Christine. It it speaks. It seems like spring at the beginning there. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a very helpful um, context, Matt, because when I enter into this stanza, it's really hard for me not to just jump right to the biblical symbolism. So it's actually very helpful for me to hear you kind of say, okay, here's the ground situation, here's how it fits into the narrative, and to kind of show us exactly how it fits to the, into the narrative. Sometimes it's really hard for me to even see that it is fitting into the narrative, but I think you're a hundred percent right that it's like uh, almost almost like a Bruegel painting or something, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, you you get the sense of you know they're going into a tavern and they're seeing the the, the drunkards playing their little gambling games and um, and indeed I think David that is so interesting that we've moved from the cold coming to um, the wet below the snow line smelling of vegetation. So there's, it's a temperate place. And um, in some sense, I think we're coming into the horizon of Christ Hmm. Hmm. in the the poem. And and we're coming into the horizon of um, redemptive uh, history and the, and the, the parts of that story that are overlapping with this one. And what's odd about it is, again, like Renaissance paintings, have you noticed that sometimes Renaissance paintings don't 
they're not chronological. So you'll have um, a painting of Christ's birth and John the Baptist and Mary Magdalene all grown up and dressed in their saintly garb will be standing there adoring the baby. Hmm. Hmm. Um, and so I think this is a kind of um, anachronism or um, anti-chronologic um, moment that, um, here's another example of it in, in art. Mary's face is always young in, like it, you could, the Pietà, her face is really young even though she's the mother of Christ and holding Christ's dead body. Mm. And so there's a sense mm. in which there's a spiritual layer of reality going on. And, um, and here we're getting, I think we're getting the poem that is happening on the literal level is also happening on the allegorical level. Because um, lots of these references are the, you know, high points, or you might even say low points of the crucifixion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, so can we can we take a crack at just contemplating what we might be what might be going on here? I mean, we have, he makes he makes very clear that there are three trees. So he's got the old white horse, which is a fascinating image galloping away in a meadow. We've got the tavern, but it's a tavern that specifically has vine leaves over the lintel. We have the six hands that are gambling, so presumably, well, possibly, you know, that's three people. Um, what what are going? What, what's going on with these numbers here in, in particular? I'm not saying we have to have the answer, but I'm curious if you have any 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 thoughts about it. Uh, the, the what immediately jumped out at me with the three trees is the the three trees on Golgotha, right? The three crosses of right. Christ and the and the two thieves, thieves. Right. Yes, I I think that would be the place that I would start too, and also um, the uh, the the dicing for pieces of silver is like um, the the way in which they were dividing up Christ, it's sort of a conflated image of both dividing up Christ's um, garments, hmm. the way that the soldiers uh, did that, um, or the people who were at the cross. And then also the pieces of silver are referenced to Judas's yeah. Um, yeah. money, blood money. Um, the empty wineskins, of course, um, that was that's a reference uh, to... Um, to those biblical images of of new wine not being put in old wineskins and Christ being um, an image of new wine. Um, and as well, it makes us think of things like the wedding at, at Cana. I mean, you know, his first miracle. I mean, there's just a lot of imagery from the New Testament that comes into that reference. And I don't think Eliot wants us he doesn't want to just say it straight. He's he's kind of recasting it in a way that blurs and blends the references. Yeah, yeah. And these are not people. Uh, uh, so, because so I think there's the, I, I think there's that contrast again of them coming into this lush, vibrant valley and then they cut and then they meet the people in the tavern or they see these people in the tavern 
these are not the type of people who are who are, are who care that there's a king being born just down the road. Nor are they the type of people that would seem to put up a fight to what Herod is going to do to the children under two, to the boys under two. They're just there doing their thing, enjoying, maybe enjoying each other's company, maybe not. They're just there trying to make some money and drink their wine. Hmm. There's there's no information. They have nothing to, to offer the, the Magi. The quest. They're not a part of that of that journey. Yeah. I, I can't help but think um, uh, a couple of other references. Um, there's, you know, the, the horses from the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Um, the there's the the first horse of conquest from the apocalypse is white. Um, and so there's there's a that seems to be kind of somewhat again there's a kind of eschatological reading of this section um, that's both uh, including of the crucifixion, which is you know yet to come, but also even possibly the second coming, where the world is um, where Christ reckons once and for all with um, the evil one. And the powers of evil. Hmm. And I also, I, I don't know why, but um, I can't help but think about Rembrandt's um, painting of the windmill. Hmm. And this idea of it beating the darkness. Um, the windmill is, I think I've read that the windmill is... Of the, of the cross, of the crucifixion. At least that's how Rembrandt was at least um, gesturing towards that. Oh. And so the fact that it says here that it was it was beating the darkness, you know, beating against the darkness, um, that language really calls to me here in this stanza because the darkness is something that's been on this journey. You know, they, they travel at night, um, there's the darkness of, of humankind, you know, of, of people cursing and grumbling and wanting their liquor and women. There's the darkness within themselves, the darkness of um, their own uh, lusts and slothfulness that they're beginning to sense is going to have to be part, is going to have to pass away. Um, that this coming, this journey, this uh, ultimate road trip, which I'm kind of saying that tongue in cheek, um, <laughs> is, um, is not just a one time experience. And it, there's no part of their lives that's safe from this reality. Huh. And that is both, it is life changing and it's not life changing in a way that makes you want to have a party. You just came from having a party with the silken girls and the sherbet, you know? It, yeah, it's, yeah. You, you have to re-examine. And yet at the same time, there's a watermill beating the darkness. Hmm. And the running stream is, um, is, how about may, be a reference to the water that flows from the side of Christ, as yeah. well as um, the waters of baptism. Are they... 
are they themselves somehow being baptized by passing passing over or passing by the stream on their way to the tavern? And it, well, you even have the idea of East Spring being, I mean, Easter being in spring might play into this possibly. Absolutely, I think it does, and also of fertility, because there's the the pagan. There's you know there's always fertility. There are fertility cults throughout the history of cult um, worship, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but there's a sense in which this um, winter into spring movement is you know just just like with Aslan um, and Narnia is tied to um, the birth and, of course, as well, not just the birth, but the death of Christ that's being referred to here. Hmm. Well, with that, we probably should transition to the last stanza because we're going on an hour now, and so we definitely should touch on, we should touch on yeah. this as, with as much time as we have left. Um, and, and like I said, one of the things that stood out to me was just the way that it switches the narrative is over. We get we switch to the first person, and you've got this sense of contemplation, of reflection. This was a long time ago. I remember. I remember, and I would do it again. Um, what do you, what do we make of this um, little three line sequence here? But set down this, set down this, where we where we led all that way for birth or death. Why does he do this? That, why does he repeat that? But set down this, set down this. And, and you also have the kind of weird enjambment going on there too. The way the lines are kind of split up and yet pushed together. It's just fascinating because what we're seeing about poetry and the way you have to think about it a long time is what he's doing with this experience. Hmm. It's a long time ago and he's still trying to set something down about it. Mm-hmm. He's still asking a question about it. Um, and he still needs to remind himself and us, I would do it again. I mean, there is an element of self-talk in this stanza. I mean, it's, it's almost a sense of having to claim it, having to claim the... Mm-hmm. Having to choose it again mm-hmm. in this moment of telling. Interesting, interesting because the going back to the folly that you mentioned earlier, David, right? With the it, the way he describes it there, you know, it, it's so bad in that first stanza that you almost think, I mean, they, in the initial journey, they were questioning it, you know, it, with the voices singing in our ears, and then you almost wonder if he would still question it, but then he then he tells you here in the beginning of this third stanza that he doesn't, that he, he would do it again. Even in spite of all that, he would do it again. I think that what is happening in this stanza is very much in keeping with um, the texture of our own religious experience um, and our own experience with Christ, which is, um, you know, you keep waiting for your doubts to go away. You keep waiting... Mm -hmm for everything to be solved and just to get to move on, you know? And they don't go away. You, you get led into the next one. Um, you know, you get, you get led into the next moment of choosing, of, of choosing again, that you're going with the story that, that says, um, you know, that despite 
the story that he's he's reiterating here, despite the ambivalence, despite the fact that there's a great deal of of doubt and of suffering and of loss in this journey. Um, he would do it again, and he's going to do it again. He's going to do it right now in this in the space of this poem. What if Christine? What if? Um... What if that's the answer to the to the last line? I don't know if I want to jump jump there right away, but there's all this stuff in the middle. <laughs> but it, what if he's saying, "And I would do it again," and then and then the very last line is, "I should be glad mm. of a chance to do it again." I I think that's brilliant. Yeah, the uh, I, a word I, another there, and I think it's also not separate from the um the tonal situation of that second line. I would do it again. He is reminding himself that he would do it again. It's not just a report to us. Mm-hmm. Mm. He has to say, I would, I would do it again. Yeah. I would, I would be glad of another death because that's part of the nature of doubt. You come back to that precipice again. It's part of the nature of faith too. You come back to the precipice. It's not over. Do you believe it now? When someone you love um, is in great distress? Do you believe it now when the world is under such duress? You know, would you, would you still do it again now? You know, I mean, there's that nature of this dialectic that goes on within us is being enacted for us in the poem. And then you, we even get to speak to that idea of doubt. He says, set this down, set this down. And as if it makes me feel like, okay, if you're going to write anything, write this down. And then he asks the question. Yep. He doesn't give us information. He doesn't say, write down, this is a fact. He says, set this down. And then he asks the question, were we led all that way for birth or death? Yeah. Huh. It's so true. And then the line after that, he starts trying to put down his evidence, yeah. right? Yeah. There was a birth. We had evidence, and no doubt. I mean, you so much feel that voice of um, that need to say it out loud for it to be true. And then he says, I had seen birth and death, but had thought they were different. And I'm fascinated by this line, what what Eliot's doing here, because is he saying, I had seen birth and death, but had thought they were different from what I expected them to be? Or is he saying, I had seen birth and death, but had thought they were different from each other? I think he's saying both. It's a good answer. Um, <laughs> so, and I just, but I, I, I kind of, that's kind of what my, where my thinking was going to go with it. But I think I find it fascinating the way Elliot presents that. The way he, the way he sets that up for us to think about. Yes. Yeah. I, I, until I experienced this event... Until I encountered this event, I thought birth and death were different. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then, of course, the other reading, which is what you said, I, I thought birth and death were different from each other, but they're not. I Before this, it's almost like, uh, you know, we count time, we call time, at, you know, in the year of our Lord. This is, that would be another title for this poem, right? <laughs> in the year of our Lord, like B.C. and A.D., this is his cataclysmic event. It's his eucatastrophe. And hmm. 
he's trying to find the uke. <laughs> I mean, he's trying to he's trying to find he he's he's painfully aware of both aspects of it. And, and he, he then says, refers to this birth as a hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. So there's not just like death, but like our death, and it was hard and bitter. There's an agony even. Yes, which is a strong word choice for this poem, which has had a rather, there's some detachment. Yeah. It was a long time ago. Um, we sense the emotional urgency of this stanza in a way that's quite different from what was previous to it. And that word in particular, to use a word like agony, feels almost like overstatement for this poet. The bitter part makes me think of Mary, and and the this birth was a, the the idea of a hard and bitter agony, obviously speaking to the pain of childbirth in general, but also the idea of for Mary the you know Christ's death being a bitter, ultimately being a bitter thing to have to experience to go through to see. It catches you off guard your first time because you're listening to the words or you're reading the words and you think this birth was a hard and bitter agony and he could just, he could just full stop right there because mm -hmm. that's what birth is. But then he says for us and you're wondering what, mm -hmm. how is it? How like, that's, that's, that's what happened when I read it. That was my immediate response was, wait a minute, how could it be hard and bitter for them? It was birth. Births are joyful for, for everybody, everybody involved typically. Except the mother. Yeah. <laughs> and, the, and the baby. Bitter, yeah, they're, they are bitter. I was also thinking with that word bitter of the the gall that was offered to Christ on yeah. the cross, yeah. you know? That, yeah. And then they returned to their places, to their kingdoms. But they were no longer at ease there in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. I love that he That's... brings the word kingdom into the poem. Mm-hmm. Capital K. The other thing that I didn't remember, which was that they were kings. <laughs> <laughs> and it seems so much that that is the dialectic that's going on in here, which is that of kingdoms. What, what kingdom do we inhabit? You know, this is a kingdom that, as we are so aware of with the Beatitudes and the Gospels, it just turns everything upside down. And Everything that we thought was intuitive is almost the opposite. <laughs> um, and, and so that utter um, turning over of the tables of, of our lives and our expectations for our lives um, is part of the confusion of the language of birth and death and the experience of birth and death. A conversion is a birth, but it's also a death. And, and for the context within this poem, you even have their people, the people who in the old dispensation were perhaps their friends, but they were their subjects. They're now alien people. They're, yeah. they're non-familiar. It's as if they're from a different land, they're from a different place, or at least maybe the, the Magi are now from a different place. And they're clutching their gods, and they're no longer, those are no longer the gods of the Magi. You know, it's a different, the pronoun is not our, it's their. Oh. It's our death, but they are gods. Our places, but they are gods. They went on the, the road. They never came home. Hmm. Yeah, but and yet they did because 
well, physically they do, and I think he draws special attention to it because he refers to we turn to our we return to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here. As if when he's writing this poem, he is there at that time in that tense, in the kingdom. But it's not home. It's he's not really there, and yet he's physically there. Like exactly. Eliot draws attention to the fact that he is in that place there, but it's yep. not home. It's no longer home. He. He and the people there are... He's really the alien now. The, the other alien. people feel like the alien, but he's the alien. And he didn't... That's, he, they didn't call it... They didn't call, he didn't say homes. He said places. Good point. It, it's to me... I, the, I thought of um, Frodo not being yeah. able to go back and stay in the Shire, that he had to leave. He, there was, yeah. he was so changed by his experience that he couldn't live... With his with his own friends and family were were an alien people to him. Yeah, they're not they're not yeah. home. They're kingdoms that they rule over, perhaps, but they're no longer home. Hmm. That's what I mean by it being a BCAD moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the time has been severed. There was the pre sojourn and the post sojourn yeah. of their mm-hmm. lives and. They are forever sojourners, which of course takes us back to scripture too, which is constantly telling us that's what it's going to be. But I think in our lives, when we confront this, we we keep thinking that someday we won't be sojourners, someday here, now. And I think he's saying actually that once we come into that kingdom, the horizon of that Um, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the Beatitudes, we won't be at home. We will be sojourners from that time forth. Hmm. Until uh, we are reunited. Hmm. So So then that's what he might be saying with that very last line. I should be glad of another death, meaning his own death. Because at that point, he gets reunited. He gets to go to home. Hmm. Yes. I, I, thought, I thought when I read it that the, another death, that if he's describing Christ's birth as a death, that another death was Christ's death. So he was, he's, even though it's a long time, it, you know, all of this was a long time ago, um, I, I still imagined it within that, you know, 30 year time period, 33 year time period. And so he's, he's looking forward to that. He somehow is expecting the crucifixion. He's looking forward to it because he thinks that that's going to bring about the, the rest of that change. Or if, or maybe if the birth and the death are equal, then the, the other death is the resurrection, the rebirth, so to speak. That might oh, be. Nice. Oh, yeah. Or the um, <laughs> yeah, coming, right? Right. Yeah. And I, I think, oh, that is so helpful to me. I, I do, because I, I just. So if we say I should be glad of another death, either Christ or His, there's still an element of cliche to that finish that's just not happy to me. Mm-hmm. Um, Especially for T.S. Eliot. Yeah, exactly. Either cliche or a kind of resignation that just doesn't seem to be what the poem is about. 
that kind of takes the tension. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But if we say, if we conflate death and life with it, I mean, you know, death and birth, like uh, he's been asking us to, then you're right. Then death, um, then the resurrection and the second coming fall under that category of birth slash death. Thank you so much. Yes. I needed that. <laughs> mm. Well, this has been fun. Okay, I'm just going to read a, um, a, a hymn, an ancient hymn of the church about the wise men that I really love. That this yeah. Yeah, reminds me Your nativity, O Christ our God, has shown to the world the light of wisdom. For by it, those who worshipped the stars were taught by a star to adore you, the Son of Righteousness, and to know you, the Orient from on high. O Lord, glory to you. So, of course, it's not quite the inner tumultuous dialogue of the monologue, rather, of the Magi, but or the Magus, but um, it's that same... Uh, allegorical reading of their journey that makes it relevant to our own lives and our journey. That's what we're doing too. Hmm. Well, Can I, one more thing. I'm sorry. This is it. I yeah, promise. No, go ahead. Go look at the, the painting um, by Fra Angelico um, made in um it's called the Adoration of the Magi, and it's it, it's a painting that is a fresco that's in situ. So it's actually in the cell. Frangelico painted a lot of his paintings in the monastery where he lived, and they were each on a different in a different cell. And so somebody lived with that painting their whole lives and looked at it every day. And this one in particular, I have a little postcard of it in front of me. On the there's a there's a the large painting is of the adoration of the magi and then right below it set into the wall is Christ with um, the death tools and with his side pierced um, both on the cross and kind of standing in his coffin his sarcophagus and so there's a sense in which the painting is kind of showing that birth and death that are at one with each other. It's a really wonderful image for this poem. Hmm. Uh, I'm going to put that, I'm going to try to find that online and put a link to it in the notes for the show so people that are listening can go check that out. That would be great. And, and then that hymn, do you, is, what's the name of that so that I can link to that as well? Or so people can go Google it. Um, why don't I go find the, I'll find the link. Okay. okay. <laughs> Matt just sent over the link of the... Great. Uh, Thank of you, the, Matt. Yeah, I'll, uh, so for people who are listening, I will post the link to that hymn that Christine read and also the, the Fra Angelico painting that she is, is uh, ref- referring to. So look, look in the notes below the description of the podcast for that. Um, this is really fun, you too. I think we need to do this periodically. I'm completely up for it. <laughs> Me too. Just two things. Give me enough time to... Cause I, I want to memorize all the poems that we do <laughs> to give me enough time to do that. And then don't pick anything that's more than like, I don't know, 50 or 60 lines. <laughs> I'm so on board with that, Matt. I love that idea. All right. and We've got standards then. I'm good with what I can work within a framework. Commend it to our listeners to do the same thing. I, the other thing I just want to say is when you do this with people, 
you learn so much. I mean, yeah, this yeah, question yeah. that I had coming into it about the last line, I really feel so much answered on that. Doesn't mean I won't keep listening to it and thinking about it, but my heart is singing by that revelation. Um, Matt, Christine, any final thoughts you'd like to leave us with? Uh, no, I just, I mean, thank you both for the conversation. I really enjoyed enjoyed this. I learned a lot. Um, many of the observ many of the observations I made, some of them were observations that I discovered in the process of reading and memorizing it. Some of them, just when one of you would would highlight or emphasize a a line and comment on it, it would bring revelations to light from in other lines and other sections. So, mm. it just I think what you know what you, what you were just saying, Christine, about doing this in community and and then even hearing different ways that people read the poem and their pauses and their inflection and their um, their you know their their volume all of those things the it just it, even there it it brings to light so many things so it's definitely something that should be done in community I think we should keep doing it and I would just say that in terms of um, interpretation I know a lot of people have questions about interpreting poetry and um, poetry is not meant to have a monolithic interpretation you you do need to learn how to support it what you're seeing, how to, how to give evidence and analysis of what you're seeing, but you get to see. And so, you know, go at it, Fig figure some things out, come to some convictions, follow your intuition. Um, don't wait for someone else to tell you what it means. Hmm. Yeah. And you know, a couple of times, uh, one or several of us mentioned things like you feel the, you feel this here, you know, with, with his word choices and the language and the, um, the phrasing and as a, again, from, you know, among the uninitiated, sometimes that sounds like I, I would hear that and think, I don't know what, I don't know. I mean, I, I couldn't have said that, but I, I think it's important to note that the poetry's doing what the poetry does, whether, even if I can't articulate it, mm. right. In time, we learn to articulate it because we, we, we spend time with the poetry and we spend time with with multiple poems and multiple poets and we spend time with other people doing poetry in community but but even even the first time the first few times i read this i was feeling that i was feeling the i was feeling those emotions but i wouldn't necessarily have articulated it right off the bat if you had asked me how are you feeling i, I wouldn't have been i wouldn't have been able to say that and then the more I spent time with it, the more those feelings became, I became aware enough of the feelings that I could articulate them. So I don't know, some, you know, think about it. Like if you're, if you're not a wine person, but you hear wine people talking about wine and they smell the wine and they say, Oh, I smell oak and snails and you know, whatever. <laughs> the, and then you're thinking, what? I don't smell any of that. I just, I smell wine. Uh, I mean, it's the same thing. There's, it's the the smells are there, even if you can't if you can't name them. And and with poetry, the feelings are there, even if I can't name them right off the bat. Well, I'm gonna have to post on Facebook or somewhere a picture of my piece of paper here with the that I printed out with the poem on it, because it you can hardly see the poem anymore from all the notes <laughs> that I wrote from what you guys were saying. 
I love that. All the, I, all the lines and circles and scratch that is my writing. <laughs> I do. I love the word that Matt keeps using, which is time. These things, they just take time. They don't yield to anything but that, time and attention. Hmm. It's not a magic formula. Hmm. And it's time well spent. Yes. But alas, speaking of time, we have it's to over. go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us on Quiddity as we refreshed ourselves at Cisterns of Learning dug long ago, drawing from springs too deep for taint. I hope you enjoyed the discussion of the journey of the Magi as much as I did. You can find links to the ancient hymn and the Fra Angelico painting in the show notes. Join us next week for another episode and be sure to check out the other shows on the Circe Podcast Network.